Y'all turn with me to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew 27, verse 45, Matthew 27, verse 45. We're going to, we're coming close to the end of our series um, on the last days of Jesus, the days right before the cross. Today, we're going to get to the cross when, you know, one of the pleasures that I have as a parent and you too, if you have children, is you get to experience things that you experienced as a child or a teenager, you get to experience all them all over again through the eyes of your child. You know, when you take your, your son or daughter as a little one to uh, your favorite amusement park or to, uh, you take them to see a Disney movie for the first time. And you get to see all that again, or, or, or one of your favorite books, and you read it together. And then as they become teenagers, you kind of get into their music, and, and you show them your music and some of the things you were into. Um, it can be humbling, though, because I remember uh, there there have been times when I've taken my kids places that I loved when I was a kid, and they've been like, really, Dad? This really or or even worse when when my daughter was first discovering her music, and I'd, I'd say, hey, let me play you some real music. And then I'd, I'd realize I never really listened to the lyrics when I was a teenage boy. And I'd go, okay, honey, we don't really listen to that music. So that can be, that can be you know, humbling, but to, to experience something that you've seen and done a hundred times, to do it as if it were the first time, you do it through the eyes of someone else. And that's what we're going to do today. There's this song I grew up singing, Tell Me the Old, Old Story of Jesus and His Love. We've heard the story of Jesus and the cross so many times that we can just sort of let it wash over us and we can be daydreaming about something else. It can be like a familiar song that we don't really hear the words of. But today I want you to hear the words. We want to see it through the eyes of someone who didn't know who Jesus was before that day. This is a story of love and a story of righteousness, a story of the ugliness of human sin and the power of the grace of God. So let's read together, starting with verse 45, Matthew's account of the death of Christ. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now, Matthew writes these words, but he's not an eyewitness. Matthew was not there at the cross. We were told by all the gospels that all the disciples fled at Gethsemane. They left Jesus behind there. Now, John and Peter managed to sneak back up uh, to, the, to the high priest's home so they could watch the trial. But even Peter left when he was found out. And people accused him and they, they said, you were with him, weren't you? And he had to deny Jesus three times and ran away in, in tears. So Matthew gets this testimony from others who were there. Who was there? We know that there was a group of women there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. 
watching her own son die. Mary Magdalene was there, several other women who followed Jesus to the very end. And ladies, if anyone ever tries to tell you that Christianity is an anti-woman religion, remind them that according to all four gospels, all the men left Jesus and the women stayed. So there's that. Amen. I heard a, I heard a feminine amen. That's a good thing. Yeah. There were, also, there were also enemies of Jesus at that cross. The people who had hounded and harried him and, and plotted to seek his death, they came to make sure that he died. And there were guards there. There were Roman soldiers, including a centurion. And his testimony is the one I want us to think about today. His eyewitness version of the story. We can, we can put ourselves in his mind to think of a man who knew nothing about, Ju- about Jesus who knew nothing about, about the Messiah or the Messiah that the, the Jews expected, who was there that day seeing Jesus for the first time, and it changed his life. And we don't know his name, so let's just call him Maximus. How about that? Pretty good Roman centurion name. Mid-morning, Maximus would have taken charge of the situation. Pontius Pilate would have uh, had declared Jesus fit for execution, for crucifixion, and he turned him over to the centurion along with two other condemned men. It was about nine in the morning. He would have been in charge of making sure they marched, carrying their crosses all the way from the fortress Antonia in the center of town, out past the gates of the city into the hill that the Jews called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there he would have given the order for them to be crucified, for the nails to be placed through their hands and feet and for those posts to set in their holes. Now, I'm sure that as Maximus first saw Jesus, the first thing he thought was, why is this man so beaten up? He's been flogged. That's not typical of a Roman execution. Usually the point of crucifixion was for them to die as slowly as possible, as, with as much pain and humiliation as possible as a signal to others. He probably thought to himself as he saw Jesus, well, this one's not going to last long. But I I promise you, as he gave the order to nail those hands and feet to the crosses, he would have felt no sympathy, no compassion, and not one hint of regret because he was a loyal Roman soldier. You You don't ascend to the level of centurion without being very good at what you do, which is killing people, and without being absolutely committed to following the orders of those who were his superiors. A a Roman judge had declared these men guilty. Whatever they had done was none of his business. They were guilty as far as he was concerned, and they deserved what was coming to them. They were to die, and he would make sure that happened. He had never failed yet. He also noticed, I'm sure, a larger crowd than usual, and, and when he saw those posts land in those holes in the ground, mounted there, never to be dislodged until all three men were dead. I'm sure he noticed the women at the feet of the middle man, the the man crucified on that middle cross, weeping and wailing as Jewish women were prone to do. He, of course, came from European stock where people were more dignified. He also, I'm sure, saw the, the priests and the scribes, the leaders of Israel, standing there in all their flowing finery. And this was not typical. Those kinds of people stayed away from such unsavory situations. What were they doing here? He noticed they were acting very unpriest-like, in fact, as periodically one or two of them would stand face-to-face, nose-to-nose with the man on the middle cross and would spit in his face and would shout things. Now, Maximus was a Roman, but he'd been in this cursed country long enough that he'd picked up a little bit of Aramaic, and he could tell they were mocking this man and, and saying things like, come down off that cross if you're the son of God, and if God loves you so much, why doesn't he save you? And he saved others, but he can't save himself. And then he heard the man speak. 
And the first thing he heard him say was, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Now, Maximus knew that in order to speak while crucified was an excruciating experience. It was hard enough just to breathe with your your limbs stretched out that way and with your your body hanging in that way. And, And in order to breathe at all, you had to push up on the nails through your feet to give your lungs room to expand. And and in order to speak, you had to push extra hard. And it wasn't worth the effort unless what you had to say was especially important. Most people didn't speak at all once they were on that cross. But this man, this man chose to expend that much effort to forgive his enemies. Who was this man? Later, later he saw him speaking to the two men on his right and left. You see, from the very beginning, those two had been mocking Jesus as well, had been mocking this man on the cross. But now one of them spoke up and said to the man on the opposite side, leave him alone. He, he has done nothing wrong where we, we deserve what's coming to us. And he looked at the man in the middle and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. And Maximus must have thought to himself, well, so his name is Jesus, and apparently he thinks he's going somewhere good today. Well, he's got another thing coming. People aren't crucified and then go straight to Elysium. They go somewhere else. Later on, as the priests went silent and they they held back, watching with a cold and calculating eye, watching for their enemy to die, some of the soldiers, some of his men were squatting there in front of the crosses, gambling over a piece of clothing, which he found out belonged to Jesus when they arrested him. And then he heard the man speak again. Woman, behold your son. He was looking at one of the women in the little clot of of ladies sitting there weeping. And then he looked at a young man not far away and he said, son, behold your mother. For just a moment, Maximus' heart started to soften as he thought back to his own mother and the last time he saw her thousands of miles away eating at her table and how much he'd love to be there. And then just as quickly, he wiped away all the sentiment from his heart as he realized if these stubborn Jews weren't so hard-headed, if they would just give up on their one God and, and embrace Roman gods and Roman justice and Roman law, I wouldn't have to be here. None of these things would have to happen. The hours passed. The sun grew high in the sky, and suddenly, right around noon, the sun was no more. It was like someone had flipped a switch. Everything went dark. He heard the sounds of people murmuring behind him, a little panicked. He thought to himself, apparently this isn't going to be like every other execution. The gods must be angry. Maybe they're they're sorrowful, but it's not my concern. I'm not a priest. I'm a centurion. My job is to keep my eyes on that cross. He waited for his eyes to adjust to the darkness, make sure those three men were still there and no one, no one could get near. And as that sky grew dark, he heard Jesus speak again, the words we read, words that exceeded the bounds of his limited Aramaic vocabulary. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Someone thought he was calling Elijah. It's an old Jewish tradition that you can call on Elijah when you're in danger. Elijah went to heaven in a whirlwind. It's thought maybe he'd come back. And so someone ran to get him a sponge of wine and lifted it to his lips. But I'll bet there were some who understood what Jesus was saying in that crowd. The priests, if no one else. 
Every devout Jew who understood the words coming from his mouth knew that he was quoting from a familiar psalm, Psalm 22. You know, we think of the Psalms as, as the biggest book of the Bible. We think of it as, as just another book in our scriptures. But to the Jews, that was their hymn book. So for Jesus to say, my God, my God, why are you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Would be like for me to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You know what comes next? That saved a wretch like me? We all know that song. The Jews would have known the rest of that song. And when Jesus spoke it, they would have sung it in their minds. They'd sung it many times in the synagogue. So what was Jesus saying? Let's take a step away from the centurion for just a moment. Let's talk about Psalm 22. Let's talk about that fourth word from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Easily the most disturbing of the seven things Jesus said while he was dying. What did he mean by that? Let's look at Psalm 22 real quickly. Let's just look at a couple of parts of it, not the whole thing. Verses 7 and 8, it says, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now, that doesn't sound like any hymn or any praise chorus we sing in church today. You notice that our hymns tend to be joyous. They tend to be happy. They tend to be victorious. But if you read the Psalms from cover to cover, you'll find that a great number of them, maybe the majority, are what we call psalms of lament. They're psalms written from someone who is heartbroken, someone who's afraid, someone who's filled with doubt, someone who's saying, God, where are you? Why have you done this to me? When are you going to show up and make things right? And this is one of those psalms written by David, originally the king of Israel. And he's writing about We don't know what situation was going on in David's life, but he's writing about how everyone hates me now. Everyone mocks me, mocks me for my faith in you. And in the verses we just read, he talks about words that sound awfully familiar, words that sound an awful lot like the words that those priests and scribes were saying to Jesus just a couple of hours before. And I wonder if those priests who were still standing there and knew what Jesus was saying and were playing that song in their minds, I wonder if when they got to that part, they recognized the words they had spoken. Later on in that same psalm, it says in verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now, let me tell you, the Bible has a a long section devoted to David's life. There is nothing in the life of David biblically that matches the description we just read. David was never crucified. In fact, crucifixion wasn't even invented when David wrote that psalm. And yet he speaks of his hands and feet being pierced. So he's not talking about himself. He's talking about someone else. And when he talks about clothes being divided and casting lots for his garments, again, I wonder if those priests, as they thought of that lyric to the song, if a cold chill went up their spines and they quickly dismissed the thought, it can't be, it can't be. So what did Jesus mean by quoting this psalm? I think he meant three things. I think number one, he was telling everyone who was listening, it had to happen this way. This is the way it was decreed. This looks like I'm an innocent victim against my will, but the truth is this is the way it was decreed from long before. Secondly, and more importantly, he was telling us what he was experiencing. He was saying, I'm suffering in a way you can't comprehend. Every person who was ever crucified suffered uh, in, in a way you and I hopefully will never experience. 
But Jesus' suffering was different. Every Easter, we have sermons in churches all across this country and around the world as pastors get up and and they try to describe the physical suffering that a a crucifixion victim goes through. Doctors have written extensively on the subject and so preachers will will read those texts to us and, and try their best to get down to the gruesome detail of what it feels like to be crucified. If you remember 10 or 12 years ago when Mel Gibson put out his movie, The Passion of the Christ, And he did a fantastic job of showing us visually the suffering of Jesus. But I want to tell you, Jesus' crucifixion was different. And the pain he experienced is something that no preacher can describe and no movie can depict. Because when Jesus said, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't just quoting a song. He was telling us what was happening in his life right at that moment. See, what Jesus was doing was dying for our sins. What does my sin deserve? What is the proper punishment for my sin? I will tell you, based on Scripture, the proper punishment for my sin, I'm just talking about my sin, is eternal separation from God. The proper punishment is that I would never enter into the presence of God, that I would never enjoy any of His blessings, that someday, if I went through this life and never made things right, that my eternity would be separated from every good thing. And we have a word for that. It's hell. What I deserve is hell. So in order to buy my redemption, Jesus had to experience what I deserve, which is hell. And so what was happening on the cross was Jesus was experiencing my hell, my eternity separated from God, concentrated into six hours. But not just mine. He was experiencing the hell that you deserve. And every other person who's ever lived, eight, nine, ten billion people, and however many are going to live before he comes back, multiply that infinity upon infinity of suffering. In that one moment, when God the Father turns his face away from God the Son, when God the Son, his holiness, his perfection, experiences the suffering and the anguish that all of us deserve, so that we won't have to. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't asking a question. He was showing us what he was going through for us. And then third, he was saying to us, this is victory. It doesn't look like victory. It doesn't look like I'm winning. It looks like I've lost everything, but I am triumphing over your sin and your death and your penalty and over the devil himself. I am triumphing today. I am nailing a a stake through the heart of everything that stands between you and God the Father. As that song uh, the band sang just a moment ago said, the cross meant to kill was our victory. Jesus, according to Hebrews chapter 12, had joy in his heart for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. How can a man suffer a, a, a billion hells combined and still have joy in his heart. Jesus did because he knew what this was purchasing. He was paying a high price, but he knew what the result would be. And it brought him joy. That psalm ends with these words. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And here's the thing about the Psalms of Lament. All but one or two end in victory. They start with doubt and fear and anguish and anger, 
but they end with victory. And Psalm 22 is the same. The psalmist is talking about, I'm going to survive this. I'm going to stand among the assembly of God's people and shout your goodness. And then the, the last words are, he has done it. He has done what? For, for centuries, the Jewish elders had read those words, had sung those words, and they'd assumed that it was talking about Israel. It, they had assumed that it was talking about God has rescued his people from their enemies. Yes, but so much more. Jesus did so much more than that. He won victory for everyone, everyone who wants it. That darkness was heavy hanging over that place. No one understood. No one understood what was going on. Not really, not the way Jesus did. He spoke again. He said, I am thirsty. Maximus thought to himself, well, finally he's thinking of his own needs. Finally, he's starting to give in. The disciples much later would realize even there Jesus was fulfilling prophecy, not just speaking of his own physical needs. And then he spoke and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And just when everyone thought he was dead, he drew in a, a deep breath, deeper than all the previous six. And he uttered a loud shout. Matthew doesn't tell us the words, but John does. His loud shout as he died was, it is finished. The Greek word tetelestai, we don't know what it is in Aramaic, but it is finished. And then he dropped. And to Maximus, this was the most amazing thing at all, of all, more amazing even than the darkness, that a man could shout as he died on the cross. No one could do that. They didn't have anything left. It, 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 the, the cross steals everything from you. How did he have enough strength left to shout? And not just a shout, but a shout of victory. I mean, this man, the, the cross is supposed to destroy you utterly and, and take away your dignity and your pride and reduce you to weeping and, and humiliation. But this man, he shouted like a, a man who has just knocked his opponent out in a boxing match, like a sprinter who's just broken the tape in first place. He, he, he shouted like someone who's just won. And that shout was punctuated by an earthquake as suddenly the world exploded and buildings crumbled and people screamed and, and ran in separate directions and trampled one another in their panic. And Maximus and his men had to stand strong, had to make sure that nobody moved, that nobody came near those men on the crosses. Quickly, quickly he ordered that someone break the legs of the man on the right and on the left to make sure that they died. They would suffocate quickly in a few minutes. A spear was punctured into the side of Jesus to make sure he was dead as well. Maximus didn't know it, but in other parts of the city, amazing things were happening. Uh, the priests inside the temple saw to their horror and amazement that the curtain that separated the common area from the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. And for the first time since the building of that temple, anyone who wanted to could look into the place where the Jews believed that God dwelled. Meanwhile, tombs all around the city, caves, saw the rocks that, that covered those bodies split apart and crumbled those bodies were exposed to daylight. Those bones were exposed to fresh air. And in a couple of days on Sunday, there were strange reports of people seeing, coming face to face with people they had only read about in the Torah or heard about from their priests in the synagogue, Old Testament men and women, heroes of the faith. What was this? What was this about? No one knew. The priests went home shaking their heads, wondering what was, what was going to happen. To their temple now. Mary was bereft. I'm sure she had to be carried away by her friends. 
But that centurion stayed to the very end. And it's his words, the only words that we have of, a, of an eyewitness at the cross. He spoke those words, surely this was the Son of God. And those words have been debated. And, and, and scholars will tell you that a, a Roman wouldn't have used that term Son of God the same way a Jew would have. That to the Romans, Son of God meant that it was someone who perhaps had lived such a virtuous or courageous life that the, the gods had decided to confer upon him divinity as he reached heaven. And, and so they say, well, you know, Augustus Caesar, for instance, called himself the Son of God. He took that as a title. And so maybe, maybe what the centurion was saying, all he was saying was really, this man was innocent, and when he gets to Elysium later today, they'll bless him with a divine title. Maybe that's all he was saying. Maybe Matthew just put that story in here so that future generations would know that on the day of his death, a Roman official declared Jesus innocent of any crime. Maybe. Or maybe. Just maybe. And we'll have to wait for eternity to find out. Maybe that man meant something far more. Maybe, maybe everything that he saw really did change his life that day. Maybe when he saw a man who could forgive his enemies as he died, a man who could, who could dream of a, a happy future when his hands and feet were nailed to a cross, who could make the sky go black at high noon, a man who could die with a shout of triumph on his lips, Maybe such a man was more than a man. And that centurion didn't know Psalm 22. He never heard Jesus teach or saw him perform miracles. He probably didn't even know the name of Jesus before that day. But if that day the words that he said were an indication that something in his heart had changed, that somewhere in that curtain, that torn curtain of his heart, he had entered into the throne room of the one true God because of what he had seen in this man Jesus and had said, I am a sinner and I need what this man has. If that happened, if that's what he was saying, then I promise you this. Today, today in that place Jesus called paradise, there's an old Roman soldier standing there at the side of Jesus and maybe he's even watching us right now saying, trust him. Trust him. He can change your life like he changed mine. N.T. Wright tells a story of a friend of his, an archbishop that he knows. The archbishop said once there were these three young teenage boys who decided to play a prank on the local village priest. And they, they went in one after the other to confession. And they had worked up ahead of time what they were going to do. Each one was going to tell the most raunchy and ridiculous and spectacular story of sin they could think of just to try to shock the old man. And, and they did, each one, one after the other. They told the dirtiest story they could think of, and then they ran away laughing. The third boy, though, before he could leave, the priest said, stop there for a second, son. And you've had your fun, now do something for me. Before you leave this church, go into the sanctuary, stand at the foot of the crucifix, look up into the face of Jesus, and say, you did all this for me, and I don't even care. And so the boy, incredibly, decided to do it. He walked out into that sanctuary, defiant, stood at the foot of that gruesome, gaunt crucifix, and looked up into that face and said, you did all this for me, and I don't even care. And then he said it again. But he couldn't say it a third time because he burst into tears. And the archbishop told N.T. Wright, he said, the reason I know that story is because that third boy was me. That's how I came to know Christ. And many of us, I mean, none of us has a testimony exactly like that, I'm sure. But many of us in this room would say, yeah, there's something about the cross of Jesus Christ. There's something about the cross 
that changes everything. Because, and, and I think what it comes down to is, you and I have been raised up in this world, this world that has trained us in every way from our education to our, our parenting to our, our time in athletics to our time at work to our dating to everything. Everything comes down to you've got to be good. You've got to get it right. You've got to look good. You've got to do the right thing. You've got to be successful. You've got to be smart. You've got to make the grade. And we just assume that if God is big and, and strong and mighty and righteous and holy, then he probably really expects far more than anybody else. And there's no way he could ever accept someone like us. And then to find out at the cross, turns out that our sin is far worse than we ever thought. That we're way, 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 way farther from God than we ever dreamed. But his love for us is so much greater than we ever dared hope. His righteousness is so incredible. His wrath is real. But his love and his grace cover it all. That all we have to do is come to him. The door is open. He's paid the price. And we can be transformed. And that's the good news. And that's the best news. And that good news is just almost irresistible. There's a few people just prideful enough and stubborn enough that once they finally comprehend that, they can still walk away, but not many. And so the thing is, if you haven't, if you haven't heard that good news and responded and said, because he did that for me, I want to follow him and I want to receive what he paid so much to give me, then today's your day. And Alan and I are going to stand up here in a moment. You can walk forward and, and walk into his, walk through the torn curtain that, that separates you from God, that Jesus tore himself and have new life today, but for the rest of us who would say, yeah, I've already made that decision, man, there is something deeply wrong in our hearts if we don't immediately start thinking about all the people in our lives who haven't experienced that. And recognizing someone needs to tell them this truth, like someone told me this truth. Because he's Jesus. Because his cross is our victory. 